Buddhist Geeks, exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What happens when you combine a thousands-year-old contemplative tradition with exponentially changing technology and an increasingly global and interconnected world? Since 2007, Buddhist Geeks has been striving to come up with answers to this question, and we've only just begun. Over the years, we've recorded hundreds of talks and conversations on the development of Buddhism in the 21st century. These recordings, in the form of our weekly podcast, are downloaded over a million times each year, accounting for several million total downloads. If you've been positively impacted by Buddhist Geeks, we ask that you consider becoming a monthly micro-patron. As little as $2 a month helps us reach important milestones related to the production of the weekly podcast, from scheduling guests to crafting thoughtful questions to recording, editing, and publishing the finished episode. Your support enables us to take the time we need to create something worth listening to. Being a patron is about supporting those things that are most important to you, that you feel have the potential to change the world for the better. Come put your money where your heart is. Patreon.com slash BuddhistGeeks. In the universe story, this book by Barry and Swim, they make this point much more poetically than I can. Quote, the mind that searches for contact with the Milky Way is the very mind of the Milky Way galaxy in search of its own inner depths. Hmm. In other words, maybe if you go out late at night, you look up at the stars, wonder, you know, what it's all about. Well, us, these beings that have been created, that are looking up at the Milky Way, we are in fact products of the Milky Way. It's the Milky Way looking up at itself and wondering what it's all about. What does this imply about somebody like Walt Whitman admiring a beautiful sunset? Again, quoting from their book, Walt Whitman is a space the Milky Way fashioned to feel its own grandeur. Instead of our eyes being the result of chance mutations, can we see them as created by the cosmos in order to perceive itself, right? This is where things get really interesting from a Buddhist perspective, and it's also we're, we're going to have a little break in the sense that uh, we're going to have a one-minute musical interlude. Um, I'm aware this is really heady stuff, right? And uh, it would be lovely if I could figure out a way to bring more humor into this or even figure out a good way to put it into slides. Uh, but in fact, I'm inspired by the music that we had yesterday from our Bay Area yoga teacher. I really like the way she used music. And I thought, well, okay, this is like the critical point of the talk. Maybe if we have just a little bit of music to uh, set up. Ready? Okay, Kelly.
Thank you. So that's the setup, the Buddhist setup, right? And here's the really interesting question. The understanding of ourselves as the way in which the cosmos comes to know of self, right? Does this help to answer the age-old Buddhist question, if there's no self, who becomes enlightened? Who awakens? Is the answer to that in some profound sense that it's the universe itself? After his own awakening, the 12th century Japanese Zen master Dogen, Dogen Kigen, um, his awakening happened when his teacher said, you know, mind and body must fall away. You must let go mind and body. And he was able to do that. And afterwards, he described his awakening in the following way. I came to realize clearly that mind is no other than mountains and rivers and the great wide earth, the sun and the moon and the stars. According to a Mahayana teaching, Shakyamuni, the historical Buddha, became enlightened when he looked up from his meditations under the Bodhi tree and he saw the morning star, Venus, whereupon he declared, I am awakened together with the whole of the great earth and all its beings. Not that everyone else became enlightened as he did, but in a sense, the whole cosmos was becoming enlightened through him. Did the Buddha suddenly awaken, suddenly realize his non-duality with that star and with everything else? There's a beautiful poem by Rumi, a very short one I'd like to quote, which is from a different tradition, which is really helpful because it reminds us that this dharma is not the exclusive possession of Buddhism. Rumi has this wonderful little poem called The Worm Awakes. This is how a human being can change. There's a worm addicted to eating grape leaves. Suddenly, he wakes up. Call it grace, whatever. Something wakes him, and he's no longer a worm. He's the entire vineyard. And the orchard, too, the fruit, the trunks, a growing wisdom and joy that doesn't need to devour. What's going on there? To awaken is to realize, and you know, remembering the Buddhist critique of the Buddhist emphasis on anatta, no self, what does that mean? As I see it, as I understand it, the notion that there's a me here inside, somehow inside my head, behind the eyes, looking out at you, the sense of separation between this. This is the fundamental duality. Rather, I and each one of us is not inside looking out, but rather each of us is one of the countless ways in which the whole cosmos, all the causes and conditions, are coming together right here and now. This is beautifully expressed by Nisargadatta, Vedantin, who put it better than anyone else when he said, When I look inside and see that I am nothing, that's wisdom. When I look outside and see that I am everything, that's love. Between these two, my life turns. Does this make any sense? I think you can see how the basic claims of the new story might fit very well into the Buddhist understanding and how the Buddhist understanding can actually help us here. And I wonder if this can also help us understand the sense sense in which we are special. And this is a big issue because there's this big controversy, I think really in Buddhism and in a lot of other circles as well, 
you know, whether we are, like the Bible says, we're special, we're superior to other species, whether we believe that or not, we certainly act that way, don't we? We abuse them and abuse them. Or whether we're the species just like any other species. Uh, and in a way, I think from a Buddhist perspective, we can say that they're both true. Right? From, if you want to talk about form is emptiness. Emptiness is this word that scares everybody, but basically it means things are empty of any self-existence, any reality, any being of their own, because everything is interconnected, everything is dependent upon everything else. What this means is from that perspective, nothing is any more valuable, nothing has any superiority over anything else. Everything is a manifestation, a lacking nothing manifestation of the whole. And yet... We can also see, if we look at the other side, if we look at emptiness as form, and we look at forms, and of course we can understand that there's evolution, there's progress, complexity, and greater consciousness, right? From one cell to multi-celled creatures, from reptiles to mammals to primates to human beings, and also to the fact that we seem to be the species that has the ability to wake up and realize that we are the cosmos. And what's important about that? And it's not simply that we have that ability. It goes further than that, it seems to me. It's, if we understand the cosmos as this fundamentally creative process, transforming, creating all these new things all the time, then with us, new types of creativity become possible. That wouldn't become possible. And we call it culture, human culture. So... If the concern is to understand how the universe is constantly creating and creating more things that can flourish, with us, new types of flourishing become possible that wouldn't otherwise be available there. It's like, it's almost as if we become centers, autonomous centers of creativity that can sort of bring the creative process to heights of development that wouldn't be possible without us. What do I mean? Human culture transforms eating into growing food, cooking, and elegant dining. We transform procreation into romance, weddings, marriage, children, love, right? Uh, we transform grunts, communicative grunts, bird calls, into language, literature, philosophy, dharma, and so many other types of storytelling. New, new possibilities. We transform birdsong into symphonies. And we also create new species, many new species, by which I mean things like, well, originally hand axes, knives and wells, bridges, houses and roads, temples and cathedrals, string quartets and jazz quartets, oil portraits, marble portraits, marble statues, schools, economic systems, political institutions, scientific research, computers, the internet, and new types of internet-based communities. In other words, the cosmos becomes incredibly richer in creative and flourishing possibilities. I remember William Blake said, eternity is in love with the productions of time. And maybe from a Buddhist perspective, we can say the cosmos is in love with the forms that emptiness takes. 
which is important because sometimes we get stuck on the form is emptiness. We're too much focused on realizing the emptiness, realizing the quiet, empty place, and minimize the fact that the emptiness is kind of a generative ground from which all of these transformations, all of these creative things can arise. And one of the most important things that I think we create is new dimensions of meaning. And this is going to bring us back full circle to this whole question about, um, according to the old story, our lives are meaningless. The world is just kind of a machine that runs along according to these laws that really don't have any special meaning to them. The physicist uh, Steven Weinberg, he has said that um, the more we comprehend the universe, the more it appears pointless. That's an interesting notion, but I find it something puzzling. The person who says that, is he something outside the universe? Or is he, in fact, a product, a manifestation of the universe? In which case, it's the universe itself observing itself. And even being able to observe and comprehend itself in that way, doesn't that in some way change the universe? The fact that it's the universe able to come to this understanding? Does doing that change the universe? Certainly it changes us. And in that way... It changes the universe because we're part of it, right? You could say that we come to see the universe in a new way. If that happens, the universe is coming to see itself in a new way. What does that mean? What does that really imply? Well, getting back to this whole question of meaning and role, I think it has enormous implications, right? One of the things we know from our Buddhist practice is that as human beings, and maybe this is distinct for us as human beings, we have this ability to disidentify or to let go, right? So when we're meditating, we're letting go of thoughts, we're letting go of the things that we're normally attached to. And this is something that happens not only individually, but in the sense we're also letting go of our collective selves. So uh, in other words, I can let go of the idea of, of patriarchy, that I'm a man and separate and superior to women, or I can let go of the idea of nationalism, that I'm an American and therefore somehow different from or better than the Chinese, racism, that I'm white and not African-American, that I'm a human and not some other lower species. So there's all these kinds of letting go that are going on. But why do we do this? It's not because we want to dissociate from all of the the whole. Rather, it's just the opposite. We let go of these kind of dualities, one side of the dualities, because in a way what we're doing is opening up and learning to identify with the whole. Right? To say that we are the way that the universe wakes up, that we are the way that the cosmos knows itself. It, it's really saying that there's an important sense in which the cosmos becomes our own body, and especially the biosphere. So what does this mean? What does this imply about the meaning of our lives? Something very important, I think. We, as a species, have the opportunity, and maybe at this point in our history, it's the necessity to come to not only identify with the whole, but to take responsibility for the whole. We are the one species that can say the meaning of our lives is tied up with the fact that we take responsibility for the well-being of the whole biosphere. 
In other words, a kind of new understanding of the bodhisattva path, which I think has always been sort of pointing in that direction. As a Zen student, we recited the four, um, what is it, the um, four bodhisattva vows. The first one, living beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. Right? Pretty big job. Right? But it's the notion that as a bodhisattva, we can understand the meaning of our lives. We have this opportunity to understand the meaning of our lives as being devoted to the well-being of the whole. I think that's huge, right? I think I can see that. You can see how that is the other side of waking up and realizing we are the whole. How are we going to live in a way that's compatible with that realization? It's to take responsibility. With us, the universe, the cosmos, has evolved a being, a species, that can not only realize we are the whole, come to self-awareness, but we also take responsibility. We choose to accept responsibility for the well-being of the whole. Does this answer this whole old question about the meaning of our lives and what it's all about? It's interesting how the bodhisattva path fits in here and how I think this gives us a different perspective on it. You know, the old mythological idea of the bodhisattva According to one story, the bodhisattva is somebody who can sort of, he or she is so enlightened, they could disappear up in nirvana, but instead they choose out of compassion to stick around and help the rest of us. Very strange. It's like it's, it's to their own best interest to go to nirvana, but they choose to sacrifice. I don't think that really captures what's going on. Remembering what Nisargadatta said, as we begin to wake up and realize that, you know, I'm not in here separate from you, but rather I'm all of this, that this is my mind, as Dogen said, then it seems to be natural, a natural further stage of practice. As we become less self-preoccupied, less concerned with our own dukkha, less introverted, less narcissistic, so we naturally start to open up and we work for the betterment of everyone. Or to put it this way, if I'm non-dual with all of you, how can I be fully enlightened unless all of you are enlightened as well? And this, it seems to me, is the situation we're in today. This is the challenge. It's almost as if I think the, we're being challenged at this point in history to wake up in this fashion or get out of the way. It's not going to be easy. Uh, I mean, we know that we have some very serious problems, right? We have an ecological crisis that threatens the future of nature and of societies for, for our children, for our descendants. Um, we know that we're also, I mean, our, our creativity is so boundless. And yet just in the last century or so, you know, we've created two world wars, holocausts, genocides, um, uh, so many weapons of mass destruction, huge nuclear uh, repositories and, and stockpiles and so forth. So the whole point about our creativity is that there's two sides to it. We're able to create pretty awful things too, as well as wonderful things. And the danger is that if we continue to be motivated, and this is where Buddhism, this is where it comes back to Buddhism, if we continue to be motivated from the delusion of self, not only individual sense of self, but collective sense of self. If we continue to think, okay, I'm going to work for the well-being of me or the well-being of we at the cost of the rest of the world, if we're still caught up at that level of duality, that level of delusion, 
it's pretty likely that we're not going to be able to resolve the kinds of situations that we've gotten ourselves into here. So what needs to be done so that our creative powers will promote collective well-being, collective in this case referring to the whole of the biosphere? The German philosopher Nietzsche said that man, excuse his gendered language, huh? man is a rope stretched between the animal and the overman or the superman. We're a rope across an abyss. What's great in us is that we're a bridge and not a goal. In other words, are we transitional? Must we evolve further in order to survive at all? If so, what's needed is not a new biological species, but we're talking about a new stage in cultural evolution. And what type of cultural evolution is called for? Well, from a Buddhist perspective, we can see the fundamental problem is not so much ethical, but cognitive in the deepest sense. As I was trying to say, this delusion of separation. In other words, the basic problem is not really what you might call self-love, but a profound misunderstanding of what our true self really is. Without the compassion that arises when we realize our non-duality, empathy not only with other people, but with the whole of the biosphere, right? It's not only possible, but likely that civilization as we know it won't survive the next century or two, nor would it deserve to. Can we see then that the ecological crisis is also a spiritual crisis? To conclude, perhaps exemplars like the Buddha and Gandhi, they are har they're harbingers or prototypes of how our species needs to develop, in which case the cultural developments that are most needed today, the kind of growing tip of the whole evolutionary process, might be what's going on when we're meditating. Because, you know, as we've been hearing, these new discoveries in uh, the plasticity of the brain, it's quite fascinating. When we're meditating, it's not as though we are transforming ourselves. Rather, it's like the ego is getting out of the way so that the brain can restructure and rewiring itself. What's really going on there? Again, can we understand this as like the growing tip of the whole evolutionary process? Spiritual practices that seem necessary because they promote more than anything else helping us get beyond the delusion of a self, a separate self, whose well-being can be distinguished from that of others. So the real issue becomes, I think, is whether our species will wake up enough to become the collective bodhisattva of the biosphere. I'm reminded of something Thich Nhat Hanh wrote recently. I'm sure you've heard of it. The next Buddha may appear as a sangha, as a community, that we need, we don't just need another Buddha or another Gandhi, we need sanghas that develop and evolve and mature and become awakened in this way. And in this way, we are also challenged to discover the meaning and the role that we seek, which the old story doesn't give us. The old story, life is meaningless, might as well become consumers, what else is there to do until we die? But here we're challenged to discover a new meaning, a new role in the ongoing long-term task of repairing the biosphere repairing the rupture between us and Mother Earth. For this, of course, we need this new kind of story. We need this more therapeutic paradigm about what it means to be a human being in the 21st century. 
a paradigm that I think the new story is, is moving toward and that Buddhism can certainly contribute to. If we embrace this new story, and if we do our best to live it, it seems pretty clear that the healing that's going to happen will transform our own species, our own societies, as much as the rest of the biosphere. That's all. Thank you very much. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.